Welcome to Catapult Future Fest Conversations, powered by the voices of the Catapult community who are mobilizing capital, technology, people, and heart to solve the world's biggest challenges. Think of this podcast as a chance to sit by the fire and learn from a few of the amazing minds who joined us in Oslo for the Future Fest fifth anniversary gathering in 2022. I'm your host, Kate Byrne, co-founder and chief impact officer of Pup Venture. When it comes to our climate and the challenges we face, Paul Von Sale, founder of The Conduit, and Jeremy Oppenheim, founder of Systemic, are tired of talk. It's time for solutions, which is exactly what they provide as they share ideas for systemic solutions for getting us to net zero. This group, we're very fortunate to have because they're gonna be talking to us a bit about how do we get to uh, net zero. And so without further ado, take it away, gentlemen. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, Generally, when you have conversations like this, the person who's asking the question says a few polite platitudinous things about the person they're interviewing and that they're a world expert, they're a deep thinker, we're so lucky to have them. Um, You're not going to do any of that. I'm going to do any of that whatsoever. Take it as read that Jeremy is that in spades, as you're about to see, as the founder of Systemic, um, you know, one, if not the leading group advising companies on how to produce a more sustainable world um, and how charting out specific strategies of how to get to net zero. It's very, very, very rare and very interesting to be able to have a conversation with him. Um, And Jeremy and I are going to toggle back and forth between being profoundly gloomy and dystopian and then very wildly optimistic and panglossian and hopefully we land up somewhere in the middle which sets out both the scale of the challenge um, but also possible pathways to get there. So Jeremy, um, I want to start by asking you to provide a sort of high-level intellectual frame for what it will take for us to get to net zero, but in kind of simple layperson's terms, how much carbon do we have to reduce and what time frame, what sort of capital do you think we are going to need to allocate to it and how much carbon are we going to have to sequester or draw down because we're almost certainly going to fall short? Paul, thank you. Um, so. Um, Start with um, how much is how much have we got to deal with? Um, what is the either problem or opportunity? Um, as people would say, it's the, the opportunity in the, the carbon replacement market, if you will. But um, uh, so, 50 billion tons of CO2 equivalent every year. Um, that's the scale of what we need to tackle. It's what we have built up over, in a sense, 150 years of the industrial economy that we have developed. And just to remind everybody, just uh, it's hard to get your head around these numbers. I find it hard, right? So 50 billion is about six, seven tons per capita, right? Every single year, right? It is. I mean, I don't know what the average weight of someone in this audience is, but let's assume for a moment I'm looking around and it's it's quite it's quite a chunky audience. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so let's assume, right, that it's uh, you are. You know, you're 70 kilograms on average, right? So I guess we're talking about, you know, and you go for seven tons a year, right? So we get the numbers reasonably simple. A hundred times your body weight every year, right, is what we are putting up there in order to sustain the lifestyles that we enjoy. Um, and that's the today's, today's economy, but it, it underpins everything that we do. Um, so also, if you want, you can put it in other words, which uh, may be inappropriate, but I'll offer them, which is, you know, we're, we're all, you know, relying on the equivalent of something in the order of 100 to 200, quote-unquote, slaves in order to have the lifestyle we have, but we've just turned them into, if you will, carbon fall. Um, what do we need to do, Paul? Um, there are, at its core, three things we need to do. There are a hundred things we need to do, by the way, but let's just kind of get right down to there are three. One is we need to take the energy system, which is accountable in one way or another for, you know, kind of half, two-thirds, depends how you do the the maths, 
of all the emissions, and we need to fundamentally electrify the entire system as far as we possibly can, and we need to then take, if you will, all the carbon out of the power grid. Right, so that's the first thing we need to do. And, and just to give you a sense of what that means, you take today's power system, right, and if you want to really electrify the whole global economy, you multiply that, that power system, not all of energy, but the power, electricity bit, up by five, six, seven times over the next 25 to 30 years. And you do that on an entirely net zero basis. So every investment you make in the energy system is net zero. It's not, or zero, it's not, or we'll do some that are continuing to put money into high, you know, carbon intensive activities and others will do a bit of net zero on the side. If you really want net zero, you build the power system up, the, uh, you electrify everything you possibly can and you go 5x in terms of its size and scale and you do it with clean energy. So that's number one. Number two is you take the nature system, how we use land. Overwhelmingly, it's about land. It's a bit about oceans, but it's overwhelmingly about land. And we essentially, we don't just stop deforesting, but we re, if you will, <coughs> wild. Um, of the five, six billion hectares of land that we use to feed ourselves, right? So it's about a hectare per person bit less, but think about it in those terms, right? You basically go, we've got to take at least a billion hectares of that out of production for feeding us, and we then put it back into nature, right? And we stop cutting down any more nature. So that's number two. And the third thing you do is you take the, if you will, the materials that we use in our everyday lives, the steel, the cement, the plastics, and those are the big three, right? Again, it's like hunting, it's not, that aren't, uh, those are the big three, right? And we essentially move to an economy where we are not doubling our material intensity of global consumption, right? Which is what we've done in the last 40 years. We've literally, on a per capita basis, doubled the amount of materials that everybody uses to lead the lives that they use, and instead we've got to half it over the next 30 years. So those are the three things. If we don't do those three things, then all the other stuff that, and we will, I'm happy to talk about the kind of, the, the need for, if you will, carbon removal, but if we don't make dramatic progress on those three, electrifying with clean energy, everything in the energy system, moving from a, if you will, use of our natural resources, which continue, if you will, to destroy natural capital, but instead free up at least 20 to 30% of the land that we currently use to feed ourselves for nature and for, if you will, regeneration of, of the kind of the natural capital, and then a dematerialization from doubling to halving. If we do not do those three things, all the other conversations that you might have over the next 24, 36 hours will be interesting and fun and they will seem very cool and there will be lots of cool ideas, but they will not hit the goal that we need to collectively hit. Okay, so if those are the three big things, uh, power, land, materials, and you've set out what we need to do, the, the, the next question I'd like to, ha to ask you is, at a sort of audit level, are, on trajectory terms, are we on the right track in the time available to us? Uh, you know the answer to that, Paul. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do a quick poll in the audience. Who here thinks that we are on track to meet the, if you will, the scale of the change, the system change? that we need to actually get anywhere close to a kind of a, a 1.5 degree one. Is there anyone in the audience that thinks that we're on track? Such an unpopular it's question, because you don't uh, raise your hand. Right. Yeah, I'm going to raise it. I 
because I'm not thinking of it in a linear way. Mm-hmm. So That's good. That's a thank you. That's but we're not on track if, if you connect it up from A to B. Right? Yeah, so it's a great answer, by the way. It's a, it's a really good answer. So what you have to believe is what you just said, which is that there's an S-curve. Right, and that, that even though it's one of those system, and each of those three system changes, it feels like nothing's happening and nothing's happening and nothing's happened, and then all of a sudden it will feel like it's all happening at once. Right, so what you are arguing, and, in, and the best hope we have, is exactly the argument you've just made, which is that we don't understand the S-curve of change in these three systems, and that what's going on underneath it all is that we're laying the foundations of what we in systemic would call system two, um, and that we really are building up a, the, I don't know who, uh, whether you were all in, in Jamie Arbib's um, session this morning, um, which I unfortunately missed, but I do know his work. Um, so, and, and Jamie and I are very good mates, and, and, and so, so Jamie's answer to this is, look, there is a system two that is going to deliver net zero and many other hugely positive, if you will, and attractive features of a better economy and a better society, and it's growing up. But right now it's not visible, and what we're seeing is, is still the very, if you will, substantial vested manifestation of a system one, which is designed to be a carbon-intensive system. So, so that you've got to be believe, you've got to believe yeah. your point of view, and 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 it's it's not that your point of view is wrong, but the question is how do we uh, increase the chances, right? That that non-linear, if you will, um, evolution from system one to system two could have a, enough plausibility that it becomes self-fulfilling. And you could also say that you know you, you, you could argue that you're much closer to that being believable, for example, in energy. So it's a really. I'm glad we're in a conversation. So I, I'm, I'm, unless you have a problem go, with go, that, because go, right, go, go, right, go. it takes the pressure off me, right? Um, but <laughs> um, but I, I, I think um, we are in some ways much closer to it in energy than the others. Um, I think we are miles off it in the material system because the understanding that we have of patterns of demand, right, and our true footprint. Right, I mean, is just—it's not in our consciousness. We're incapable of understanding the extent to which our lifestyle is dependent on a set of material inputs that are effectively ha- happening somewhere else, and and therefore we just can't d- conceptualize and then act upon that 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 kind of understanding. So we are miles off on the material side. Um, on the nature side, um, we are unfortunately. Um, sort of heading in a direction um, which I, I think because of the highly specific nature of food systems and farming systems in every single country makes it very difficult to come up with the, the, the kind of quote-unquote silver bullet. The answer on food systems and, and nature systems is a hundred different answers. Um, and, and I can give you one or two bigger things and smaller things, but it's... it's whereas in, in the energy system, we absolutely know what to do, right? And, and we can have very sophisticated conversations about, do we need a bit of nuclear in the mix alongside renewable energy and how to balance the grid and do all. But fundamentally, when I say we can and must electrify the global economy, and we must then do that electrification on the basis of clean electrons, right? Across the piece, whether you're talking to the holdouts in the IEA or the, you know, the, the folk in, even you talk to the people in the American Petroleum Institute, they kind of know it, right? And they know that that answer, more importantly, can outcompete what we have today because they can see the writing on the wall in terms of the pure, if you will, cost dynamics and performance characteristics of the technologies that are coming through. So, so can, I, can I ask you just, l- l- let's follow these three heuristics for a moment and let's start with power and let's go, uh, just give us two or three things that need to accelerate that cost curve. What, what technology, what capital, what policy do we need to do in order to, if that's our best hope and the most optimistic scenario, how do we do it? 
And I, I'm not allowed to ask Mark to answer the question. No. Nope. No, okay, I'm just checking, right? Because otherwise, you, yeah. I mean, <coughs> we could uh, we could just throw to Mark and he'll, he'll answer the question, right? He certainly um, will. All right, so, um, uh, but there are probably many others in the room as well. Um, so uh, the thing that we need more than anything else is um, uh, we need to deploy the capital at scale, and we need to deploy it in 10 middle-income countries. I have great confidence, it's imperfect, but I have great confidence that the system in Europe will move in the next 10 years and with actually a helpful acceleration by what's going on in Ukraine. I don't mean to instrumentalize it, but I think it's focused people's attention. So Europe will get their own clean energy on the whole. America will get there in a different way. So, but the challenge is that there are 10 middle-income countries right, that are coal-based economies um, where the coal assets in particular, the, if you will, the, the value chain from, but, but in particular, you've got a bunch of coal-fired power plants, right? We need to help those 10 economies invest what is north of a trillion dollars a year, right, in building a clean energy system, right? That is, if there was one thing, right, not 10 things, if there was one thing that will make the biggest difference, it's how we unlock the, if you will, the capital flows that are needed for the Indonesias and the South Africas and the Indias and the Vietnams. We succeed on that front, right, and we figure out how to do that. We will make an enormous difference. The other things, right, you know, so I can tell you, you take the, the European markets, for example, that there are technical challenges in terms of power market design, right? you know, that, that get in the way of the really wonderful and innovative companies like Octopus doing what they need to do, right? Because the market is designed and the regulatory models are still designed in a way that's largely coming off the old economy with, a v with, with gas being, if you will, the marginal source of electrons. Um, and we need to change that, right? We need to, so, so there are technical unlocks that we actually, again, know. Okay, so we're going to fund, we allocate this a trillion dollars a year to 10 middle-income countries. There are <coughs> incumbent industries which are going to seek to sabotage this. Mark's work seeks to, to, to highlight that. But is there, is there a kind of policy or a political obstacle to this? If we just allocated the capital, would it just axiomatically follow? Or, or are there things as citizens and activists and voters we need to be doing as well? Well, I think that the, the question of policy is because of the way I framed this. It is absolutely country by country. Right. right? Um, so you can't, you know, what There's will no land in yeah. Vietnam or be different from what lands in, in you know, in, in, in South Africa, right? So there's a kind of, the activist thing, if you want, on this is, um, and I, I will pick on, if I, since I'm in Norway, I'm going to pick on Norway just for a moment, so uh, with um, all respect. Um, I mean, this is the point where we have to continue, A, to put money into those international aid budgets, right? We cannot turn around and go, oh my goodness, you know, there's a recession out there, and I mean, this country, my own country, are well-off countries in the great scheme of things. This country will gain from oil prices and gas prices to the tune of over $50 billion a year, right, at the current prices, going into the fiscal, um, if you will, accounts of Norway. And this country is considering, and I believe in some cases actually reducing international aid on the basis that, oh, we've got the Ukraine crisis and we've got a... It is unacceptable. It is a profound contradiction. And if Norway falls short, right, on, if you will, taking appropriate action here, then it legitimizes everybody else right and it's uh, many dimensions right i mean but so so our activist on that particular dimension is we've got to keep making sure that that the international aid budgets are not just protected but scaled and we've got to have the courage and this is the difficult bit to say look you know of course there are multiple claims on the aid budgets 
Um, and of course, we all recognize the short-term humanitarian issues, whether it's in, in East Africa right now with the drought, or it's in India, or it's in Ukraine. So there are always going to be, always going to be humanitarian issues. And I spent my first decade in, in the world of development economics, so I, I feel it deeply. But the profound change that we need to make is to help those 10 middle-income countries, not the poorest, but those middle-income countries, get off coal as fast as possible. And that is truly in the interests of the lowest-income countries okay. as well. So, um, I'm going to open a parenthesis because you kind of threw it out there. The Ukraine conflict, uh, it could either have not have come at a, a worse time or could have produced a really set of beneficial unintended consequences or a little bit of both. But given the fact that we're living in a moment where every minute counts and this potentially delays or it raises price that incentivizes, what do you think it's going to do if we look back in five years' time and looking at the quest to net zero? It depends what we choose to do in response to it, Paul. So that is the uh, I know Yes, but that's just another way of putting my question to you, mm -hmm. which is to say, I what should we do? Is, is, it, is it helping us or hurting us, and therefore what should we do? Yeah. So I think the most <coughs> obvious point is that um, you, you know, people's attention just goes on to everything else, right? So we all know that, right? And, and it, it, it is easy, by the way, to then go, well, look, cost of living, Ukraine, you know, we've got to focus in on everything else. Um, w what I would say is, you know, the Europeans are, I think, um, at the Brussels level, um, doing a pretty good job of saying, look, this is the moment where the um, energy, if you will, um, choices that we make and the climate choices that we make and the way in which we think about building a stronger Europe have to come together, right? Um, and I don't want to say it's a, you can always pick at different pieces of it, but accelerating the speed with which we move to a more energy independent, renewable energy, power driven, if you will, economy, um, and bringing that forward five years, right, is a good thing. There is no question that it is a good thing. What about but the US? What we have got to do, just to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to stick with Europe for a moment, yeah. is not build a huge LNG infrastructure yeah. right, off the back of the short-term, if you will, sort of expedience, and be really careful. I mean, I will give you one example where I think the policy settings are likely to be in, in sort of contradictory to what we need. So there's a proposal from Draghi, which is to cap the price that Europe is willing to pay for um, Russian oil, right? Now, in principle, that sounds like it's a kind of a step towards a complete sanction and therefore it's stopping to finance the Russians. It's a good idea. It's a policy mistake, right? And it's a simple policy mistake because when you cap the price for fossil fuels, it allows and encourages the continued use of them. And this is the point where from we have to move away right, from using fossil fuels. So the right policy response is to say that if we are importing any Russian oil and gas, right, we should be taxing those imports. And, and those of you who are economists in the room will know that actually that tax will in fact largely land on the Russian producers rather than on the European consumers. So it's a perfect, perfect tax. Right? Um, and the funds from that could then be used to accelerate the change. So that's the, the what it, you asked about the US. I mean, the US is largely insulated right, from what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, the, you know, the gas price is at a completely different point. Um, so, the, so what goes on in the US is all about figuring out whether there can be a bipartisan approach to the clean energy transformation and that that itself requires, you know, everything, I mean, it requires us to embrace what the U.S. does r remarkably well. So there are things that you, I mean, so the U.S. is the driver of, if you will, tech innovation. But isn't the, isn't the answer to that, whether there's a bipartisan approach to this, is just demonstrably no. I mean, if, if you can't get, when Democrats have the presidency, the Senate and the House, and 
Joe Manchin scuppers a tr an energy bill, this is the most propitious environment you can possibly have to create some semblance of a coherent policy and they're not getting it through. The, the, the yeah. It's not where it should be. I mean, yeah. but the, so the, I'll give you the, 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 the and, yep. uh, which is, you know, you are seeing in the States a very significant renewal of interest in nuclear power. Right, and they will. I mean, U.S. always claims to be, you know, this free market, you know, paradise. They are the most interventionist country when it comes to energy policy, and and they are willing to throw very large amounts of money through tax breaks, through direct R&D from the Department of Energy. Um, so fracking, which we all have our issues with, right, is not just a sort of a set of wildcatters doing cool things out in Texas or the Permian Basin. It was driven by systematic U.S. Department of Energy policy interventions and subsidies and forms of support. Right? They will and they are capable of doing the same. And the thing that will drive the U.S. more than anything else is not climate security. And it, 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 is, it is a belief that in order to um, essentially win the geopolitical race with China, that they have to get their act together. Um, and that that requires them to invest in a whole class of new energy technologies. So can I be a skeptic for a second you on that? You can be a skeptic. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm welcome the skepticism. So Biden came in as a sort of green vision, John Kerry. I mean, the, the set of... Did he really? Well, <laughs> uh, well, well, I mean, he, I, I mean, rhetorically, yes, but, but, but it ain't going to get much better in political terms in the short term. I mean, Republicans are certainly going to take over. You know, we're going to lose at least one, if not both houses. Your Trump is in the wings. The any other alt alternative U.S. president who's a Republican is going to be worse. So I think climate change in the U.S. has to happen despite politics, not because of it. Well, uh, climate change in the US has a Canada flavor, uh, a California flavor to it, and it has a multi-state flavor yeah. to it. So again, yeah. that's not just focus on the federal level. Sure. It is undoubtedly the case that there is a US yeah. problem, right? right? So let us not dance around that. There is a massive China problem, yeah. right? Equally, right? Um, and you will find the most ambitious mm -hmm. climate policies in the world in China and right. the most regressive policies right. equally in China. So you will find the same in the States. So I, there isn't an easy solution to this, but I will say if, if you want to get the US on board, yeah. then it has to come out of a story which is um, you know, more open to the use of carbon capture and storage um, and driving down the cost of that relentlessly it will have to have a bigger nuclear fuel to it. It will have to have, if you will, you know, a renewable energy story that is not entirely dependent on importing solar panels from China. Right? So there will be some ingredients to the US version of this so that we, we have to get our arms around. <coughs> so if we zoom back, your general Europe is broadly going to be on track and Ukraine has been broadly helpful. The US is going to get there for a set of endogenous reasons and despite policy, but we'll probably get there. The middle-income countries are the ones that we need to both finance and each of them have their unique policy responses that are, are required in each of them and we just need networks of sophisticated activists in each of those countries to tune those policies and build consensus and around them. And make sure the capital is and available. And, and we've got to allocate the capital. Um, Let's just go to your second for a moment, mm -hmm. because the, 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 the land use question, freeing up 20% circa there or thereabouts, a bit more of that land. Can we just, can I just say, yeah. we're still in the positive, hopeful part of the conversation, Paul? <laughs> right? right. Oh, we, uh, I just want to make well, sure I, I understand where the, in the narrative I, mean, I came out on the energy oh, conversation the, nervous, because right. of what you sketched out there, uh, it didn't seem immediately apparent how we were going to do it. I, I sort of get the big building blocks of it, but I think the detail, there's a lot to fill in, and, and I, I share with you anxiety about right, that, uh, just a little. So that we understand, I, I mean, because I, I mean, what happens for me, and I don't know whether it happens for others in the room, is you get whiplashed, right, between, you know, a narrative which we have to hold on to about the potential and the fact that we actually do know 
what it will take. And we also do know that if we can get there and we use the S-curves and we you know, create flowers, that we can get to a better place for multiple reasons, and we would want to do it with or without climate, right? So, but you then run into, Paul, your observations, yeah. which are, well, come on, look at the politics, and, and it suddenly takes you from, we can do this, to, yeah. oomph, right? So anyway, I just want to make sure we're psychologically in the same place. Um, as I don't we know if that's helpful or hurtful, I but don't know or either, harmful, but, but, but yeah. okay, so, so uh, land use. Um, if you were to crystallize uh, and in our time available, to what are we going to do to get that 20% of, of, of land reallocated and what's the best policy set of recommendations and financing tools to do it? The most single closest equivalent yeah. to renewable energy, electrify everything, yeah. is alternative protein. Right. right. So when you look at land use and you do the big numbers, right? So I talk about, you know, six billion hectares. I mean, we have kind of four to five billion hectares of forest and other stuff around, and we have six billion of land that we use to feed ourselves. And there's a bit of that that's used to clothe us, right? But of the six billion, it's about, you know, 10% max that's for growing the, the what we need to feed ourselves and a bit of fiber on top. So of so, so if you stick with my numbers, right, of the six billion, two billion is used, slightly more, two, two and a half, is for grazing and pasture and, and livestock, right? There are um, 70 billion animals that we use to feed seven billion people, maybe it's eight billion people, right? Just think about that for a moment. We have put in place a, if you will, protein, an animal protein system, that has 70 billion animals, right, to feed 8 billion humans. So we need to deal with that, and, and every single, if you will, assessment that we, that we and others have done says that there are an infinite number of ways yeah. right, to take the 2.5 billion hectares of land that we use to grow our animals, and a billion hectares of the, if you will, the <coughs> corn and the soy and all the other things that we also grow to then feed animals, right, and to change that profoundly. Okay, so, <coughs> and this is where Jamie Arbib's work on, you know, roughly reducing the cost of protein to that of sugar and basically causing a widespread collapse in livestock herds and, and then returning the land seems very S curvy, right? If you, mm -hmm. if I mean, if there's one, so so I, I kind of want to ask you that question, which is, if you've been following some of the detail about what's happened with Impossible and Beyond Meat and and the stuff that's happening in synthetic biology and all these mm -hmm. replacements, it's kind of, it seemed like the wonderful utopian story, and it's gone through a little bit of a dip recently. Mm -hmm. But is your general view that that's just some quivers in an otherwise ineluctable movement to protein replacement and we're going to get there and if we can fund it we'll do it um so first of all the notion that the alternative proteins could be as pervasive and cheap as sugar is terrifying right um and it is terrifying because look what's happened now that sugar is as cheap as it is right so yeah. be yeah. be careful in statements like that um but but the problem we have i mean the the answer is yes but Right, so there is no question in my mind because there are, and this is the joy of alternative producers, there are a hundred pathways, right? It is exploding in lots of different ways. So this is not dependent on one technology coming through, right? And it's not dependent on one supply chain for cobalt, right? Yeah. <laughs> or whatever it is. We can get there through multiple, multiple pathways. Yeah. So that is the good news, right? Yeah. And the technology and the, if you will, the entrepreneurial options are, you know, mushrooming. Um, and mushrooms by themselves are quite useful in all of us. So the but is that when you actually look at what's going on, we are simply adding alternative protein on top of existing um, kind of um, animal-based protein. And so we're all eating more protein, right? So what's not happening, is even in Europe, is that alternative protein is substituting for meat-based protein. What's it going to take to substitute? Uh, it's going to take two things. Yeah. Uh, one is it's going to take 
properly taxing yeah. the meat, yeah. right? So that we actually pay for the full price of the meat. Yeah. Um, and the second is it's going to take um, just the classic things of the supermarkets and the others actually deciding that they're not going to just put a little bit of, you know, alternative protein in the side and all the rest of it, okay. but they're going to embed. One of the things that there's a really cool thing going on. So I'm going to give one example where um, Tesco's in the UK, or not that I'd say cool and Tesco's in the same sentence, but, but, they, are, but they are hybridizing so that you find that, you know, your lasagna or whatever it is, is you thought it was a you know kind of your your normal meat but it's half uh, half alternative and half animal and so they're shifting the if you will the if you are the formulation it's great a substitution yeah and it's a yeah. substitution and people go i didn't know it tasted any different and before you know it people's taste buds get retuned so that is what needs to happen okay Tesco's finest is an oxymoron. There we go. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that's, so very sno that's very snobby of you. Paul, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> um, so the, um, the third area that we're going to uh, talk about is materials. And <coughs> massive progress conceptually, green steel, green concrete, uh, green hydrogen. Again, there's an entrepreneurial story of this accelerating breakthroughs being financed, rolling out. What's the but? What are the obstacles to doing, making that happen at speed and scale? Well, the but is the very simple one, which you've implied, but yeah. I'll now make it explicit. Yeah. If what we do is take all the wonderful combustion engine cars we have, and every one of us instead decides to have an electric vehicle, we are completely doomed. All right? So... Um, that is not going to... And the problem is that, that huge amounts of materials get consumed in private car ownership models. Right? And that simply, when you do the numbers, if we replaced all of the internal combustion engine cars and little vans and all the rest of it, so there are roughly one and a half billion of them the Don't world. go into the detail, just right. make the point, because right. I think, yes, yeah, so, yeah. But if we replace them all yeah. with electric vehicles, yeah. we blow through the carbon budget, right? Because just to manufacture them, right? So please don't do it. Is that the point? Well, if that's the point, <laughs> where does it take us? Um, well, the, it takes us to um, being a bit more challenging to the Teslas of the world and the BMWs and everybody else and every industrial policymaker yeah. who only wants us to say that we can continue to have exactly the same model of ownership right, that we've always had and that we've built into our vision of what it means to, if you have a workable economy, we've got to challenge that. You cannot, cannot simply deliver this, if you will, change right with a supply side only revolution so radical investment in public transport driverless cars ai more optimal use of a, of a smaller fleet all of that stuff right. and you know for the developing countries i mean remember there are in the order of a hundred million people a year moving into cities you know, we you know, how do we make sure that those cities are designed how do we make sure that neighborhoods are designed in such a way that we don't need to be dependent on individual car ownership if we are dependent on individual car ownership because of the way we design our cities yeah. and we live we will not stay anywhere close to the net zero budget so this is you could either go, oh my God, it's even more difficult, and it is difficult, or you go, now I understand what we need to do. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm just going to try and keep on track for a second, if you don't mind. But, uh, um, I'm uh, happy to take any questions afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, so you've got those three areas. We, I've heard you say in other contexts, we are almost certainly uh, not going to make progress at the speed we need to make and we're not going to draw that we're not going to reduce carbon emissions at the speed and we have to therefore inescapably if we don't want to be in a plus one and a half let alone two or two and a half degree world we're going to have to think in a much more imaginative way at a gigaton level of sequestrations and drawdowns so we're going to have to think at the 10 gigaton level just okay. so we're clear about the numbers fine right? and and that means that we will need an industry 
to do carbon drawdown and sequestration that is somewhere between one and a half and two times the size of the current oil and gas industry, which is tremendous news, right? And the reason it's tremendous news is I can't think of a better thing to do with the oil and gas industry than to make them from being the guys that put all their, hydro, uh, their CO2 emissions into the world, they have precise, you just need to run it in reverse, right? I'm exaggerating and simplifying a little bit, but not much, right? You literally, these are the guys that have the assets, the infrastructure, the capabilities, and you take this thing that puts, creates the problem, and if we could unimaginably get the right policy settings in place, they could be the heroes of what you've just described. Okay, that to me seems to be an incredibly big idea. and As opposed to the other ones. Well, yeah, right. exactly. Okay. First no, time so you've said so a so big so thing. So thank you God never, for you that. never say right. big right. things, Jeremy. So, so, so I've got one so out of once, you at right. least the today. The thank not God. Not the normal thank one. God. Right. Good. Um, so, but can you sketch out the architecture of that? Can you say, I mean, not in the detail, but just like... What, what would it take to imagine that reversal, and, and how would it be structured? Well, you have, uh, you have national oil companies, which are like Equinor, where the yeah. state controls the, the if you will, the, the company. Right? Yeah. It's not purely state-owned, but it's largely state-owned. Yeah. Um, and the state decides that, just as with other things that we need from a public point of view, this is what we want to do with this company. Um, and it puts the policy, you need policies, I mean you can't get there, they need to be paid. So what we ought to be doing is just as we do in, we have a public health system, in, I, I suspect in, in Norway, right, and in many other countries, and we use taxpayer money to pay for a service that we need to deliver public health, right? Um, and there are different versions of this, but a version of what I've just described is that we decide that what we want to do is to repurpose the extraordinary assets and capabilities of these companies to be, if you will, playing the role we need them to play. They can have a license to operate. You know all this conversation about windfall taxes on the oil and gas companies right now? I would let them keep the money if I thought that they were going to deploy it to turn themselves into proper circular carbon companies, right? That okay. would be a social purpose for those companies, which we absolutely need. And it's much better, by the way, than the idea that they're suddenly going to become geniuses at renewable energy. Right. So that, in some ways, is a political question. Let's either through ownership or through taxation or through public policy get these fossil um, giants, these giants to, 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 to turn around. From a technology level, and there I mean giving the shepherd's crook here, so we're going to, but from a technology level, wha wha what do you think the sequestering technologies are that you're most excited? And I don't want to succumb to techno-optimism and substitute all the hard work, but where are the areas where you would be, where you'd be betting if you could get these companies to be investing as they should in that transition? No, I, I mean, what's e extraordinary is that there are, um, again, and this is where you could be more optimistic. I mean, I personally put capital into, you know, a you know, carbon capture company, you know, five years ago, where, you know, the cost of, the carb of, of capturing a ton, right, from industrial processes was about a couple of hundred dollars a ton. That was just the capture phase. And they've now got to a point in half a dozen years where it's about 50 Right, um, and they haven't even started scale, right? So it's like everything else. We could industrialize a lot of the carbon capture processes. We know how to do, you know, salt rock caverns, right, to store CO2. We actually know how to do that. We can see, I mean, you and I have talked about various ocean, if you will, sequestration plays that have some complexity to them, but that could be you know, gigaton a year sinks. But what we need to understand is the set of technologies, the direct air capture, the ocean-based sequestration, the applications of you know, CO2 into cement and other smart materials, the use of it in a circular form into synfuels, each of those, and the synfuels piece will be critical for the aviation sector, because we cannot just do aviation on biofuels. I can tell you that for nothing. Right, if you want to take my s six billion and cut it to four, don't don't just grow a vast biofuels economy for the for aviation. Um, so we actually know how to actually take 10 gigatons 
and gigaton by gigaton, figure out what the best capture option is, use the S curves that you were describing, and my belief is that, m the, that on a 10 gigaton scale, right, the marginal cost right, in 2035 will be about $100, but the average cost will be about 50 to $60 a ton. Wow. If we decide that we want to do it. Okay. If we don't decide, and we piss around for the next 10, 15 years, and that's a technical expression, um, <laughs> then, then it will be a lot more expensive, right? Because we will not create anything of scale and integrity. Okay, so we're, we're out of time. I'm going to ask you a final question. And I, and I want to sort of, it's that question which can flip to being fatalistic or optimistic, and I suspect you might do a bit of it. But when I listen to you, every time I listen to you, and you do a kind of analytic, you break down by every single sector, you say, what are the reductions? You always point out a set of technologies, a set of capital allocations, and a set of policy plays that we need to bring to bear. And I come away in each of them feeling that there are five or six big technological innovations that if we allocated capital to them and then the rate at which we're innovating through entrepreneurship and through breakthroughs in science give me an enormous amount of hope that we will sort of in this highly distributed way get there. And then it I destroy your hope at some point. <laughs> yeah, then, and then I, I'm crushed and I go home deeply depressed. But if you have a sort of a, a binary final answer, wha what are the things that give us cause for optimism that that positive vision might eventuate? And what are the things that are cause you to sweat, to think that despite that we know what to do, we can do it and we can policy around it, we are going to, despite ourselves, fail? It's um, really, I think, quite simple, Paul, um, which is that the technology and the capital give me source reasons to be optimistic um, because, I mean, I mean let me I'm going to give you a technology and capital example for a moment. I mean, w when I started doing work on this, I mean, 15 years ago, but, but even six, seven years ago when we set up Systemic, the idea that we could actually have a zero emissions aviation was inconceivable, it wasn't inconceivable, but it was hard to imagine. I mean, all the memes within the climate community were, you know, the last sort of ton of CO2 will be emitted in aviation because we're all going to fly forever and, and we can't figure out the answer. But you look at what's going on today, right, from the hydrogen stories to the, you know, the sin fuels to the infinite array of innovation that's happening around aviation, that incredibly hard to abate sector, or steel, and Maria, I see, I mean, these sectors which we said they were so hard, it was inconceivable that we could, within five, ten years, get steel to be a green steel story, uh, or that we could get hydrogen, green hydrogen, down to, you know, a dollar a kilogram, right? And we're all now going, well, of course we can get hydrogen down to a dollar a kilogram. Right, we absolutely can see the pathway to that. We can absolutely see where that hydrogen could be used in the fertilizer sector and in shipping and in steel. We understand how to do that. It's astonishing. It is a transformation in our belief in what is possible if we pay attention. Um, and I'm going to say two final things. I know we need to stop. The problem is all about politics. Right? It is a deep, the, the deep contradictions that we keep on having. Right? And it is, uh, and I will again, just because we're here in Norway, but I could pick up my own country, but I'll pick on this one. Right? Um, you, know, you cannot be a net zero country. Whatever you do on with the Sovereign Wealth Fund and with whatever you do with forests and all the rest of it, if it's a country that is still generating at least half a gigaton a year of emissions outside Norway, right, on the back of selling gas. It just doesn't work. And if Norway does it, then every other hydrocarbon-based economy in the world is legitimized in doing the same. So it's not just the half a gigaton from Equinor, it's every other national oil company that says, well, if Norway does this, we're going to do it too. 
So you're, you know, whether you like it or not, you're on the hook, right? You can't get around. So, it, so the problem is the politics. Uh -huh. The problem is the vested interest. Um, but the opportunity is not just the technology and the capital, which is all available in principle, but it is the fact that, and you've heard me on this story before, we actually know that if we decide to focus and really get our act together, we can do it. And if you want the proof of that, right, it is in the wonderful, wonderful story of blue whales. Right? Um, and the wonderful story of blue whales, if you ever go to the Natural History Museum in London, you will know that there used to be 400,000 blue whales, roughly, this is what scientists tell me, right, in, in sort of the 16th century. And, and they were hunted and hunted and hunted, and by the time I was born in 1962, right, um, uh, there were only 400 left in the world, right, because we hunted them to the point of near extinction. And then at some point in that process, people woke up and said, we can't do this. This is unethical. It wasn't an econ economics, technical, deeply logical. It was just so profoundly wrong that we would, if you will, be the cause of the extinction of such an extraordinary um, species um, that people kind of focused and got over the psychological and political reasons why the Norwegians needed to do that and the Japanese needed to do something else and whoever else. And today, because we put the right policies in place, but with not just the right economics, but with the deep values and mindsets of what it means to be human, right, in the 21st century, we now have 40,000 blue whales in the world. And that is the mindset and the value set Right, that we need to apply to the greatest challenge, but also the greatest opportunity for improving our civilization, which is tackling the challenge of climate. Thank you. This is Kate Byrne. Thanks for downloading Catapult Future Fest Conversations, available wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear in the series, Join us in person at our upcoming FutureFest event in Oslo, Norway, May 31st through June 2nd, 2023.